Good evening. It is an honor to be here with you tonight, especially on this occasion, but any day. Uh, my name is Joshua Smith. I'm one of the pastors at St. Patrick Presbyterian in Collierville, Tennessee, which is a sister church of Central. And so uh, not only here uh, on behalf of a sister church, but also here in honor of a brother in Christ and uh, soon to be a partner in the uh, ordained gospel ministry, Dan uh, Dan and I have been friends for about six years now uh, through presbytery gatherings. Our churches are particularly close to one another in uh, presbytery dealings. We love to hang out with each other uh, and to uh, encourage one another. And Dan has certainly been that to me for the past six years. And so I'm very grateful to be here. Uh, this, this evening, uh, the text is from the Psalms, Psalm 8. I'll begin in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, at the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, Whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father, we know that all of our flesh and glory are grass and flowers which fade and fall. But your word endures forever. So find us here where the frailty of humanity meets with the fullness of divinity in Jesus Christ, our Messiah, and send your spirit to impart his life to us today. Amen. Uh, Dan and I were in a, a, a book club this past spring where we read a, a, a book by a guy named Alan Noble called You Are Not Your Own which was sort of a, a response to this world's liturgy that says you very much do belong to yourself. And because you are your own, you're on your own. So he draws from the catechism and says, no, you are in fact not your own, but you belong to God. And he is your hope in life and in death. Alan challenges not only uh, believers, but especially the church with these words. He says, we idolize rebels, free thinkers, and mavericks. Our modern myths are stories of rejecting traditional expectations to discover your true, pure identity. As we have seen in the contemporary anthropology, to be fully human is supposedly to be autonomous. And almost everyone you meet will continue to believe that they are their own, and so are you. Almost every institution will treat you like an autonomous individual, subject to instrumentalization and valued according to your efficiency. Like the rest of Western society, the church in the West tends to be good at helping people cope with modern life. 
but not at undoing the disorder of modern life. So long as our foundational understanding of what it means to be a human goes unquestioned, so long as we blame our problems on natural or biological limitations, societal injustices or personal weaknesses, our only recourse will be more techniques. What Dr. Noble is getting at is as long as we don't address the root problem, we will continue to only rearrange our treatment of symptoms. We don't want to blame the disorder of modern life on things like technology or drugs or pornography or the economy or politics. They're not the root problem. You you might borrow a line from Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't have a drinking problem. I have a life problem. And drinking is no longer a good solution, they would say. In fact, it's become a part of the problem. A huge problem on its own. And when we're talking about ordained ministry, we're really just talking about setting someone apart as a co-conspirator with the Lord for human thriving. It's something we're all called to do, and it requires that we regain our humanity. The psalmist recognizes this, and so he gives us a psalm about humanity But this is very important. The the commentator Mays reminds us, though this section turns on the question of a human, about the human species, the whole is composed of statements about what the Lord does. That is very important. It is the only hymn in the Old Testament composed completely as a direct address to God. And he begins, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is, all your, is your name in all the earth. There is something about being human that communicates the majesty of God on earth. And foremost, the psalmist rightly imagines a human life as being addressed to God, lived before God, coram Deo, before his faith, his face and performed for him. So this evening, I want us to look at three things briefly. I I sort of teased them in the prayer in advance. I want us to see the frailty of humanity in this passage. And then pause for a second and consider the folly of our position. And then finally, the fullness of divinity. So let's look at verse 2 as we begin to consider what a human is. He says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. We begin here not with celebrities and success stories. We would imagine that if we want to talk about humanity, we would start with paragons of excellence. We would grab Olympians. But no, the psalmist starts with babies and infants, and what comes out of their mouths. Now, if you've been around babies, you know that aside from partially digested milk, the thing that really comes out of babies is need. It's loud. It's not very clear in its communication. It's just a siren, basically. And it says, take care of me. I need to be fed. I need to be changed. I need to be held and comforted. I need to be swaddled and put to sleep. Something about the nature of of this human child at, at its most vulnerable state is what God says he's going to put up against the enemy and the avenger. 
he imagines they go into battle against the bad guys. The mind staggers. What kind of a creature is so formidable that you would put it in its most vulnerable state against your great enemies? No, seriously, he continues in verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? My son Donovan is seven years old, and like any seven-year-old, he's, he's absolutely captivated with the idea of these little screens, these magic technological boxes that you can kind of get to show you anything in the world. And when he finally gets a hold of my wife's, his number one choice is not YouTube, it's not, you know, Crossy Road, it's the Star Map app. He pulls it up, and he holds it to the sky, even in the daytime. It tells him what stars are directly above them. And then he can, he can tap on one, and it'll pull up its stats. And, and he's just as obsessed with this as he is with basketball stats. He can tell you what, how, what all of these stars are in relation to other stars. Dad, you wouldn't believe it. This one is 800 times bigger than our sun. This one is as big as our whole solar system. He's in awe of it. And because he's young and securely attached to his family, it doesn't freak him out. It kind of freaks me out a little bit. <laughs> Humanity is the point at which the entire universe turns back and looks at itself and says, what? What are we? We're, we're so small. And everything is so vast. Some of us can still look at that with awe, but most of us see it with despair. And it leads to lives of desperation. Because we listen to a story that tells us something about who we are in light of this massive cosmic universe. I can't believe I get to preach this sermon in Huntsville. Th these are people who understand. <laughs> I came here when I was a kid uh, and, and we sort of walked around the, the space center and it, it was fascinating to me. And as I got older, I started listening and, and reading a lot of, of philosophy and I'm, I'm hearing guys like Carl Sagan who say things like this. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this pale point of light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. That is Carl Sagan's benediction to the graduating class of Cornell University in 1994. What a bummer. <laughs> Go get them, tiger. You are your own and you are on your own. That's one way to tell the story. But there's something else that children tell us. Children that are securely attached to someone who's bigger than them, who loves them, who understands that even though the world is crazy big, someone crazy big loves me. See, the way the question is asked uh, sort of forces us to zoom back into the book of Genesis and to ask the question, what is it like for a creature to be made in God's image? Two words are used in this passage for man. In English, we just use the same word, man and son of man. 
But there's actually two different Hebrew words that are used. The first one is more like enosh. It means the mortal. And it's really talking more about like psychological man. The, the one that is attached to others. Interdependent. Man, the fragile spirit. There's a television show that I, I caught an episode of when I was a kid. I didn't watch the whole thing, but this one really stuck with me. Uh, in it, there's, there's a, a family, and they're very much dysfunctional. The husband decides to give the wife a birthday gift, and when she opens it up, it is a bowling ball made to his exact specifications. So she hands it to him and says, well, what am I going to do with this? And he was like, I, I guess I'll take it, and I'll use it. She absolutely stews and eventually she kicks him out of the house and she says, you can come back when you can tell me what you offer me that no one else does. And so he's outside for maybe eight hours in the backyard living, you know, among the kids playthings up in the treehouse. He grows a full beard. His clothes are all tattered and finally it occurs to him. So he comes back to the house. He knocks on the door. She opens it up and he says, sweetie, I figured it out. I know what I can offer you that no one else can. Complete and utter dependence. That's terrible for a marriage. But it's exactly what our relationship to the Lord is. Man offers complete and utter dependence. We never get over that. We, we, we like to champion people that we imagine are independent, free spirits. But those aren't real humans. They don't actually really even exist. Man is very needy, and the psalmist says that he is mindful of man. I just got done preaching through uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the best of men in Israel in this time. He is working his tail off. But you know how that book ends? Of course you don't, because no one ever preaches it. The book ends with him basically giving up, because he, he can't run around fast enough to keep Israel pure enough. He can't do it. And so in the end, he throws up his hands and he says, God, remember me. I tried my best and it wasn't good enough. And I'm the best of us and it didn't work. I came all this way and it seems like it was a waste. Will you just remember me? That's what God is doing for mortal man. God's response is, oh yes, I remember you. It is hard it is hard to be so connected and united in our humanity together uh, in, in such a way that we feel like we're not alone. But God remembers us. The second word for man, the one that comes after son of man, is the, the word we would traditionally think of, kadam, the, the dirt. That's literally what it means. Remember that I'm, I'm, I'm the child of dirt, the child of the dust. That ground to which we return. And this is amazing. The, it, I, I hope you got to hear uh, Dan's sermon that he preached uh, in order to be ordained. It was fantastic. From James 1. So beautiful. And he, he pointed something out. And I was so excited because I was like, dude, I, I'm going to preach Psalm 8 for your, your ordination service. And he was like, I didn't know that. That's incredible. But he brought out. The fact that the, the word here for uh, he cares for him is the same as the word in James. To care for orphans and widows in their distress. That he goes to the most vulnerable. He reaches out to them in their need. 
in their, their inability to care for themselves, even their, their physical needs, not just their psychological, but, but their everyday basic needs. And he visits them and he cares for them. The visitation, not of a guest, but of a caregiver making a house call when we are sick. And so Psalm 144 picks this back up and says it again this way. O Lord, what is man that you regard him? Or the son of man that you think of him? Man, it's like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Which ought to bring to mind the folly of our position. Look at verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And crowned him with glory and honor. Why would you do that? We just got done talking about him. He's no good on his own. You're going to put him in charge of stuff? That's silly. When my wife goes out of town, she knows to ask the in-laws to check in on us. But this is a coronation service. We don't really do coronations around here. Maybe you got into the Netflix drama, The, 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 the Crown. and You watched that. Maybe you got excited about royal weddings over the past several years. But there's something that's sort of parallel to this. See, you would, you would do the same thing for three different offices in ancient Israel. Whether it was a, a, a king or a prophet or a priest, you would anoint them for service. And this is parallel to that. It's, it's what we're doing today. I hope you're prepared. We're going to cover you with oil. It's going to drip down like on the, the beard of Aaron. And it's a sign that, that, that coronation, that, that anointing is a sign. In fact, the words that we use are, are things like Christ and Messiah to describe people who are anointed ones. They were looking for a specific anointed one, a prophet, a priest, and a king who was given all dominion and authority. But right now, we're just talking about humanity in general. That they're, they've all been ordained For this purpose, there's a coronation. The sons of man have been lifted to rule as sons of God. Now, in antiquity, you would only have a handful of people who had the the right requisite uh, uh, requirements to be able to be a son of God, standing on behalf of the gods to the people. But not in the Hebrew Bible. That glory is given to all of humanity. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female, whether you are Jew or Greek, Scythian, slave or free. It does not matter. You are a bearer of the image of God and it means to be exalted. To be not just a son of man, but a son of God as well. It's all of them covered with a thickness of purpose, anointed. But to do what exactly? Well, you see it in Genesis 2, but let's actually read it in Psalm 8, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and whatever that is that passes along the paths of the sea. Everywhere, the man is just sort of suspended in the middle of it all. How do we know that God's name is majestic in all the earth? Because the dominion of man is here. John Calvin says this, It is certainly a singular honor, and one which cannot be sufficiently estimated, that mortal man, as the representative of God, has dominion over the world, as if it pertained to him by right. And that whatever quarter he turns his eyes, he sees nothing wanting. 
which may contribute to the convenience and happiness of his life. Now that can obviously be abused. We've seen it be abused. But let's say best case scenario, we're still talking, this, we're still talking about man here. The, the fragile dust guy has been exalted and given all of this stuff. And he's the only one who can kind of look around and say, I'm going to rearrange this stuff and make myself more comfortable. It's pretty incredible. But this is not just a passage for farmers and zookeepers and veterinarians. This is about the in-betweenness of humans. See, we're, we're a little bit higher than the animals. We've got some animal qualities to us. And we're a little bit lower than the angels, though we've got some spiritual being qualities to us too. We're in between. We're not a hybrid. We're, we're just both. One tradition is that this psalm was, uh, was actually uh, written in honor of David's um, defeat of Goliath. If you notice up at the top of your Bible, you may see uh, where it says, you know, according to Giddith. They don't actually know what that means. But one of the, the good scholarly suggestions is that this was occasioned by David defeating Goliath. And it makes a lot of sense with the themes, if you consider it. One of the things that I think is beautiful about that story in light of this passage is they send out a little boy to do a man's job, right? And what does Goliath say? Am I a dog? That you would send a, a, a child with sticks and stones at me? Am I a dog? It's a good thing they sent David, who knows how to fight, and not me, who just knows how to sass. Because I would have said, yeah, dude, you're, you're kind of a dog. I mean, honestly, like you're, you're giving me big dog vibes right now. And here's why. Because you're not behaving like someone who's exalted above the animals. You're behaving exactly like an animal. And in scripture, the dominion over the beast is a picture, not just of the, the, the fact that, that man is exalted above other animal creatures, but also that there's a little bit of that dominion wants to swap roles. It, it's not an accident that in scripture we are shown that it is, it's a beast of the earth that gets one over on the man who's supposed to be exercising dominion. And if we look in the mirror, we actually see that that's true about us all the time, too. That it's actually the animal instinct to survive, to be self-preserving, to, to, to go for, for our own self above and against the others. That is to have the animal exercise dominion over us. In some very important ways, yes, he is a dog. Goliath doesn't wonder at the stars and his place in the universe. He doesn't care for orphans and widows. He seeks his own glory. That's what he does. My wife has a couple of rabbits in a hutch behind our house. And if the stock market tanks a little bit more, I'm going to start viewing them as like stock for stew. That's just how I'm sort of evaluating things. But one thing stands in the way between me and those rabbits. That is Allison Smith, my wife. She cares for those rabbits in a way that they do not deserve. And it's infuriating in a lot of ways. And she just absolutely fawns over them. But you know what? That doesn't say something about their value. It says something about hers. It says something about hers. What is your sphere of vocation? Where have you been called to exercise dominion? 
I'm so grateful that you guys are calling Dan to exercise a sphere of influence here. Because he's the kind of guy, and you know it, who will care well for the vulnerable. Who sees people and who leverages his influence and his authority for their thriving. It's a beautiful thing. We're all called to do that. Called to care for the vulnerable as the Lord visits the Son of Man and cares for him. And when we do that well, my wife is imaging forth God's glory. Manifesting his glory in the world when she does that for a rabbit. Dan, when he does that for you. You, when you do that for your clients, for your students, for your co-workers. We exercise dominion over the beasts in our home, work, school, and neighborhoods. When we look more like Christ than like us. And yet, even, even a French existentialist philosopher can see this. Albert Camus said, Of all the earth's inhabitants, man is the only creature who refuses to be what he is. Why is that? I think there's a hint at the end of this passage. Why? The Goliath is so strong in us. The beast that resides in us isn't just what we can kind of see and have easy access to. It's also this mysterious little passage here. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea. My, my family goes uh, pretty regularly to Pickwick Lake. I think it's about halfway between here and Memphis, right? Uh, right there on the Tennessee River. And it, this massive lake. And kids get really nervous about not being able to touch or see the bottom. And that place is gross. So you can't see it. You can't touch it. You got no sense of what's down there. And so I started telling them this story about the Ocho. And the Ocho is a freshwater octopus who terrorizes children with pranks when they misbehave. Right? Because you can't misbehave on the boat, like that's very dangerous. And so we kind of make it a game a little bit. But it taps into this idea that there's, there's something in humanity that is very nervous. Not just about the stars in the sky, but also about what's floating around underneath, beneath us. The beasts that we can't see. What, what the Hebrews called Leviathan. This creature of the deep. Even the sea represented chaos to them. And this is the guy who inhabits that. I'm supposed to exercise dominion over that? Well, Henry Stanley Haskins said that what lies beneath us and what lies before us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. Mastery over the world? We can't even master ourselves. We're supposed to exercise dominion as sons of God? I mean, we've, we've painted a good picture. We've waxed eloquent about it. We'd all like to go home and be better parents because of this. Better employers. But we're not. There's something deep in us that we just can't exercise mastery over. Anointing humans to this task seems like a disaster. There is a folly in our position between heaven and earth. We don't belong here. What frail son of the dust could have dominion over such as these. Well, you're in a Christian church tonight, so let's talk about the fullness of divinity. Herbert Schlossberg said that the Bible can be interpreted as a string of God's triumphs disguised as disasters. If I have ever seen a disaster in my life, it is humans put in charge of this place and each other. What are we doing? 
And yet somehow the victory of God is in this thing. The psalmist closes as he began. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's like he's not looking. This is a sort of a parenthetical. That's how he started. And, And there's a little section right after how he started where he says, You have set your glory in the heavens. The interpreter, James L. Mays, says, this, this is sort of like saying he established sovereignty by subjecting the hostile powers of chaos, which is another way of saying this. God has got this. It's going to be okay. Daniel pictured a son of man doing the thing that we know we're all supposed to be doing. He sees a son of man in the clouds, reigning, Over earth, a truly human one. We're looking for someone who could speak to the winds above and the waves below and cause them to cease and be silent. The author of Hebrews makes this connection. He quotes this passage, this this Psalm 8 passage. you've, You've made him a little lower than the angels and you've crowned him with glory and power. And then he says this, now in putting everything into subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Can I get an amen? But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That's what we were afraid of when he was calling our name, man, the mortal, man, the dust. What we're really afraid of, we're going to die. It's our mortality. We can't endure, and we long to. He said eternity in our hearts, but we can't get there. And now Christ, the conqueror, is doing that for us. John Calvin again. Dan, don't sleep on Calvin. This guy's amazing. While the psalmist here discourses concerning the excellency of men and describes them in respect of this, he elevates what we normally think of as our station. Hebrews applies the passage to the humiliation of Christ. The whole world's upside down. He's doing everything a little bit backwards. Our exaltation is his humiliation. Paul tells the Colossians, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Catch this. He became the son of man that we might become sons of God and reclaim our crown. That's what Matthew's talking about in Matthew 28 when he quotes Jesus. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to do all that I have commanded you. And I'll be with you. What is, what is all of that stuff? Well, it's just Jesus saying, look, I have been so human with you. And I've taught you how to be human again. Go and make people human again. Give them back what's been stolen from them. And I will be with you, exercising humanity and divinity all in one. In Matthew 21, man, 
I love that you grab that passage from Gentle and Lowly for like eight reasons. But one of them is because Matthew, uh, he, he gets this whole children thing. He gets it so big time. And in this passage, Jesus comes into Jerusalem and, and he, is, he is about to do his thing. Meanwhile, because he knows that it's his calling to restore people's humanity to them, he, he's healing people's bodies, left and right. It's spectacular. It's causing a huge scene. Nobody really knows what to do except the children. And they say, Hosanna to the, the son of David. Now, the son of David is a way of saying the son of man, but like bigger. Because the son of David is the Messiah, the anointed one, who is going to come and restore humanity to everyone else. And, and the children are the only one who see it. And the scribes and the Pharisees, are, they're ticked off. They're like, what? do you hear what they're saying about you? And he does what he classically does, which I love. And he just makes them feel stupid. He just says, you guys have read Psalm 8, right? And they're like, well, we've memorized Psalm 8. Out of the mouths of babes and children, I have ordained my praise. He's quoting this passage. He's saying, don't you see who I am? And don't you see what I have to do for you so that you can be human again? The Son of Man emptied himself of glory and honor on our behalf in order to visit us in our need. And he was suspended in helplessness on a mountaintop between heaven and earth. A very human thing for him to do. Silencing the avenger with the cries of a child to his father. Father. Exercising dominion over the beastly enemies who put him there. It looked like a disaster. But it was the victory of God. And our response... the. The charge at our coronation service will perhaps feel a little out of left field unless you were in the book club with me and Dan this semester, which I'm doing a check. It's just us, dude. So I'll tell them the same thing that I railed on about this book. The answer seems so counterintuitive, but it's this. If you want to restore your humanity, go find out what the Bible means by remembering the Sabbath. And then prioritize it. And I'm specifically saying that to you, Dan, because we've got this vocation where you can neglect the Sabbath more than anyone else. It would be so easy to do. It seems like the, the parameters just sort of squeeze all of the margin out of your life. And then you got to work on Sunday all day. Prioritize the Sabbath. But that's true for all of us. And if you're thinking, well, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure how that connects. Go and figure it out. I promise it'll be worth it. Investigate. If you study and prioritize the Sabbath, you will begin to regain your wonder at the gap between the fullness of divinity and the frailty of humanity. If you practice Sabbath, you will rely completely upon His grace to restore your humanity to you and to others through you. And you will reorient your vocation, whatever it is, that sphere of dominion that you've been given in the name of God toward his tender care on the earth as a son of God. Paul says to the Romans in chapter 10, Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth 
and in your heart. I am gentle and lowly. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Dan, you, Megan, you, all of us, rest in Christ. Let him restore your humanity and you will find yourself exercising dominion and showing that he is majestic in all the earth. Let us pray. Father, we offer ourselves to you. Be glorified in us. Thank you for the gift of Christ. Not that we might achieve humanity, but that we might receive divinity in our humanity. Thanks be to God. Amen.